0: Chapter Six of the Story of a Bad Boy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kathy Barrett. The Story of a Bad Boy by Thomas Bailey Aldrich. Chapter Six: Lights and Shadows. The first shadow that fell upon me in my new home was caused by the return of my parents to New Orleans their visit was cut short by business which required my father's presence in Natchez, where he was establishing a branch of the banking-house when they had gone a sense of loneliness such as i had never dreamed of filled my young breast i crept away to the stable and throwing my arms about gypsy's neck sobbed aloud she too had come from the sunny south and was now a stranger in a strange land the little mare seemed to realize our situation and gave me all the sympathy i could ask repeatedly rubbing her soft nose over my face and lapping up my salt tears with evident relish when night came i felt still more lonesome my grandfather sat in his arm-chair the greater part of the evening reading the rivermouth barnacle the local newspaper there was no gas in those days and the captain read by the aid of a small block tin lamp which he held in one hand I observed that he had a habit of dropping off into a doze every three or four minutes, and I forgot my homesickness at intervals in watching him. Two or three times, to my vast amusement, he scorched the edges of the newspaper with the wick of the lamp, and at about half-past eight o'clock I had the satisfactions (I am sorry to confess it was a satisfaction) of seeing the Rivermouth Barnacle in flames my grandfather leisurely extinguished the fire with his hands and miss abigail who sat near a low table knitting by the light of an astral lamp did not even look up she was quite used to this catastrophe there was little or no conversation during the evening in fact i do not remember that any one spoke at all excepting once when the captain remarked in a meditative manner that my parents must have reached new york by this time at which supposition i nearly strangled myself in attempting to intercept a sob the monotonous click-click of miss abigail's needles made me nervous after a while and finally drove me out of the sitting-room into the kitchen where kitty caused me to laugh by saying miss abigail thought that what i needed was a good dose of hot-drops a remedy she was forever ready to administer in all emergencies if a boy broke his leg or lost his mother i believe miss abigail would have given him hot-drops kitty laid herself out to be entertaining she told me several funny irish stories and described some of the odd people living in the town but in the midst of her comicalities the tears would involuntarily ooze out of my eyes though i was not a lad much addicted to weeping then kitty would put her arms around me and tell me not to mind it that it wasn't as if i had been left alone in a foreign land with no one to care for me like a poor girl whom she had once known I brightened up before long, and told Kitty all about the typhoon and the old seaman, whose name I tried in vain to recall, and was obliged to fall back on plain Sailor Ben. I was glad when ten o'clock came, the bedtime for young folks, and old folks too, at the Nutter House. Alone in the hall-chamber I had my cry out once for all, moistening the pillow to such an extent that I was obliged to turn it over to find a dry spot to go to sleep on. My grandfather wisely concluded to put me to school at once— if i had been permitted to go mooning about the house and stables i should have kept my discontent alive for months the next morning accordingly he took me by the hand and we set forth for the academy which was located at the far end of the town the temple school was a two-story brick building standing in the centre of a great square piece of land surrounded by a high picket fence there were three or four sickly trees but no grass in this enclosure which had been worn smooth and hard by the tread of multitudinous feet i noticed here and there small holes scooped in the ground indicating that it was the season for marbles a better playground for baseball couldn't have been devised on reaching the schoolhouse door the captain inquired for mr grimshaw the boy who answered our knock ushered us into a side-room and in a few minutes during which my eye took in forty-two caps hung on forty-two wooden pegs mr grimshaw made his appearance he was a slender man with white fragile hands and eyes that glanced half a dozen different ways at once a habit probably acquired from watching the boys after a brief consultation my grandfather patted me on the head and left me in the charge of this gentleman who seated himself in front of me and proceeded to sound the depth or more properly speaking the shallowness of my attainments I suspect my historical information rather startled him. I recollect I gave him to understand that Richard the Third was the last King of England. This ordeal over, Mr. Grimshaw rose and bade me follow him. A door opened, and I stood in the blaze of forty-two pairs of upturned eyes. I was a cool hand for my age, but I lacked the boldness to face this battery without wincing in a sort of dazed way i stumbled after mr grimshaw down a narrow aisle between two rows of desks and shyly took the seat pointed out to me the faint buzz that had floated over the schoolroom at our entrance died away and the interrupted lessons were resumed by degrees i recovered my coolness and ventured to look around me the owners of the forty-two caps were seated at small green desks like the one assigned to me the desks were arranged in six rows with spaces between just wide enough to prevent the boys whispering a blackboard set into the wall extended clear across the end of the room on a raised platform near the door stood the master's table and directly in front of this was a recitation bench capable of seating fifteen or twenty pupils a pair of globes tattooed with dragons and winged horses occupied a shelf between two windows which were so high from the floor that nothing but a giraffe could have looked out of them having possessed myself of these details i scrutinized my new acquaintances with unconcealed curiosity instinctively selecting my friends and picking out my enemies and in only two cases did i mistake my man a sallow boy with bright red hair sitting in the fourth row shook his fist at me furtively several times during the morning i had a presentiment i should have trouble with that boy some day a presentiment subsequently realized on my left was a chubby little fellow with a great many freckles this was Pepper Whitcomb, who made some mysterious motions to me. I didn't understand them, but as they were clearly of a Pacific nature, I winked my eye at him. This appeared to be satisfactory, for he then went on with his studies. At recess he gave me the core of his apple, though there were several applicants for it. Presently a boy in a loose olive-green jacket with two rows of brass buttons held up a folded paper behind his slate, intimating that it was intended for me the paper was passed skilfully from desk to desk until it reached my hands on opening the scrap i found that it contained a small piece of molasses candy in an extremely humid state this was certainly kind i nodded my acknowledgments and hastily slipped the delicacy into my mouth in a second i felt my tongue grow red-hot with cayenne pepper my face must have assumed a comical expression for the boy in the olive-green jacket gave an hysterical laugh for which he was instantly punished by mr grimshaw i swallowed the fiery candy though it brought the water to my eyes and managed to look so unconcerned that i was the only pupil in the form who escaped questioning as to the cause of marden's misdemeanor c marden was his name nothing else occurred that morning to interrupt the exercises excepting that a boy in the reading class threw us all into convulsions by calling absalom a balsam a balsam o oh my son a balsam I laughed as loud as any one, but I'm not so sure that I shouldn't have pronounced it a balsam myself. At recess several of the scholars came to my desk and shook hands with me, Mr. Grimshaw having previously introduced me to Phil Adams, charging him to see that I got into no trouble. My new acquaintances suggested that we should go to the playground. We were no sooner out of doors than the boy with the red hair thrust his way through the crowd and placed himself at my side." i say youngster if you're coming to this school you've got to toe the mark i didn't see any mark to toe and didn't understand what he meant but i replied politely that if it was the custom of the school i should be happy to toe the mark if he would point it out to me i don't want any of your sarse said the boy scowling Look here, Conway, cried a clear voice from the other side of the playground. You let young Bailey alone. He's a stranger here and might be afraid of you and thrash you. Why do you always throw yourself in the way of getting thrashed? I turned to the speaker, who by this time had reached the spot where we stood. Conway slunk off, favoring me with a parting scowl of defiance. I gave my hand to the boy who had befriended me. His name was Jack Harris, and thanked him for his goodwill. "'I tell you what it is, Bailey,' he said, returning my pressure good-naturedly, "'you'll have to fight Conway before the quarter ends, or you'll have no rest. "'That fellow is always hankering after a licking, "'and of course you'll give him one by and by. "'But what's the use of hurrying up an unpleasant job? "'Let's have some baseball. "'By the way, Bailey, you were a good kid not to let on to Grimshaw about the candy. "'Charlie Marden would have caught it twice as heavy. "'He's sorry he played the joke on you, and told me to tell you so. "'Hello, Blake, where are the bats?' This was addressed to a handsome, frank-looking lad of about my own age, who was engaged just then in cutting his initials on the bark of a tree near the schoolhouse. Blake shut up his penknife and went off to get the bats. During the game which ensued, I made the acquaintance of Charlie Marden, Binnie Wallace, Pepper Whitcomb, Harry Blake, and Fred Langdon. These boys, none of them more than a year or two older than I— Binnie wallace was younger were ever after my chosen comrades phil adams and jack harris were considerably our seniors and though they always treated us kids very kindly they generally went with another set of course before long i knew all the temple boys more or less intimately but the five i have named were my constant companions my first day at the temple grammar school was on the whole satisfactory i had made several warm friends and only two permanent enemies conway and his echo seth rogers for these two always went together like a deranged stomach and a headache before the end of the week i had my studies well in hand i was a little shamed at finding myself at the foot of the various classes and secretly determined to deserve promotion the school was an admirable one i might make this part of my story more entertaining by picturing mr grimshaw as a tyrant with a red nose and a large stick but unfortunately, for the purposes of sensational narrative, Mr. Grimshaw was a quiet, kind-hearted gentleman. Though a rigid disciplinarian, he had a keen sense of justice, was a good reader of character, and the boys respected him. There were two other teachers, a French tutor and a writing-master, who visited the school twice a week. On Wednesdays and Saturdays we were dismissed at noon, and these half-holidays were the brightest epochs of my existence." daily contact with boys who had not been brought up as gently as i worked an immediate and in some respects a beneficial change in my character i had the nonsense taken out of me as the saying is some of the nonsense at least i became more manly and self-reliant i discovered that the world was not created exclusively on my account in new orleans i laboured under the delusion that it was Having neither brother nor sister to give up to at home, and being moreover the largest pupil at school there, my will had seldom been opposed. At Rivermouth matters were different, and I was not long in adapting myself to the altered circumstances. Of course I got many severe rubs, often unconsciously given, but I had the sense to see that I was all the better for them. My social relations with my new schoolfellows were the pleasantest possible there was always some exciting excursion on foot a ramble through the pine woods a visit to the devil's pulpit a high cliff in the neighbourhood or a surreptitious low on the river involving an exploration of a group of diminutive islands upon one of which we pitched a tent and played we were the spanish sailors who got wrecked there years ago but the endless pine forest that skirted the town was our favourite haunt there was a great green pond hidden somewhere in its depths inhabited by a monstrous colony of turtles Harry Blake, who had an eccentric passion for carving his name on everything, never let a captured turtle slip through his fingers without leaving his mark engraved on its shell. He must have lettered about two thousand from first to last. We used to call them Harry Blake's sheep. These turtles were of a discontented and migratory turn of mind, and we frequently encountered two or three of them on the crossroads several miles from their ancestral mud unspeakable was our delight whenever we discovered one soberly walking off with harry blake's initials i've no doubt there are at this moment fat ancient turtles wandering about that gummy woodland with h b neatly cut on their venerable backs it soon became a custom among my playmates to make our barn their rendezvous gipsy proved a strong attraction "'Captain Nutter bought me a little two-wheeled cart, which she drew quite nicely, after kicking out the dasher and breaking the shafts once or twice. With our lunch-baskets and fishing tackle stowed away under the seat, we used to start off early in the afternoon for the seashore, where there were countless marvels in the shape of shells, mosses, and kelp. Gypsy enjoyed the sport as keenly as any of us, even going so far one day as to trot down the beach into the sea where we were bathing.' As she took the cart with her, our provisions were not much improved. I shall never forget how squash pie tastes after being soused in the Atlantic Ocean. Soda crackers dipped in salt water are palatable, but not squash pie. There was a good deal of wet weather during those first six weeks at Rivermouth, and we set ourselves at work to find some indoor amusement for our half-holidays it was all very well for Amadista de gall and don quixote not to mind the rain they had iron overcoats and were not from all we can learn subject to croup and the guidance of their grandfathers our case was different now boys what shall we do i asked addressing a thoughtful conclave of seven assembled in our barn one dismal rainy afternoon let's have a theatre suggested binny wallace the very thing but where the loft of the stable was ready to burst with hay provided for gipsy but the long room over the carriage-house was unoccupied the place of all places my managerial eye saw at a glance its capabilities for a theatre i had been to the play a great many times in new orleans and was wise in matters pertaining to the drama so here in due time was set up some extraordinary scenery of my own painting the curtain i recollect though it worked smoothly enough on other occasions invariably hitched during the performances and it often required the united energies of the prince of denmark the king and the gravedigger with an occasional band from the ferophilia pepper whitcomb in a low-necked dress to hoist that bit of green cambric the theatre however was a success as far as it went i retired from the business with no fewer than fifteen hundred pins after deducting the headless the pointless and the crooked pins with which our doorkeeper frequently got stuck from first to last we took in a great deal of this counterfeit money the price of admission to the rivermouth theatre was twenty pins i played all the principal parts myself not that i was a finer actor than the other boys but because i owned the establishment at the tenth representation my dramatic career was brought to a close by an unfortunate circumstance we were playing the drama of william tell the hero of switzerland of course i was william tell in spite of fred langdon who wanted to act that character himself i wouldn't let him so he withdrew from the company taking the only bow and arrow we had i made a crossbow out of a piece of whalebone and did very well without him we had reached that exciting scene where gessler the austrian tyrant commands tell to shoot the apple from his son's head pepper whitcomb who played all the juvenile and women parts was my son to guard against mischance a piece of pasteboard was fastened by a handkerchief over the upper portion of whitcomb's face while the arrow to be used was sewed up in a strip of flannel i was a capital marksman and the big apple only two yards distant turned its russet cheek fairly towards me i can see poor little pepper now as he stood without flinching waiting for me to perform my great feat i raised the crossbow amid the breathless silence of the crowded audience consisting of seven boys and three girls exclusive of kitty collins who insisted on paying her way in with a clothes pin i raised the crossbow i repeat twang went the whipcord, but alas, instead of hitting the apple, the arrow flew right into Pepper Whitcomb's mouth, which happened to be open at the time, and destroyed my aim. I shall never be able to banish that awful moment from my memory. Pepper's roar, expressive of astonishment, indignation, and pain, is still ringing in my ears. I looked upon him as a corpse, and glancing not far into the dreary future, pictured myself led forth to execution in the presence of the very same spectators then assembled luckily poor pepper was not seriously hurt but grandfather nutter appearing in the midst of the confusion attracted by the howls of young tell issued an injunction against all theatricals thereafter and the place was closed not however without a farewell speech from me in which i said that this would have been the proudest moment of my life if i hadn't hit pepper whitcomb in the mouth whereupon the audience assisted i am glad to state by pepper cried hear hear i then attributed the accident to pepper himself whose mouth being open at the instant i fired acted upon the arrow much after the fashion of a whirlpool and drew in the fatal shaft i was about to explain how a comparatively small maelstrom could suck in the largest ship when the curtain fell of its own accord amidst the shouts of the audience this was my last appearance on any stage it was some time though before i heard the end of the william tell business malicious little boys who had not been allowed to buy tickets to my theatre used to cry out after me in the street who killed cock robin i said the sparer with my bow and arrow." i killed cock robin the sarcasm of this verse was more than i could stand and it made pepper whitcomb pretty mad to be called cock robin i can tell you so the days glided on with fewer clouds and more sunshine than fall to the lot of most boys conway was certainly a cloud within the school bounds he seldom ventured to be aggressive but whenever we met about town he never failed to brush against me or pull my cap over my eyes or drive me distracted by inquiring after my family in new orleans always alluding to them as highly respectable colored people jack harris was right when he said conway would give me no rest until i fought him i felt it was ordained ages before our birth that we should meet on this planet and fight with the view of not running counter to destiny i quietly prepared myself for the impending conflict the scene of my dramatic triumphs was turned into a gymnasium for this purpose though i did not openly avow the fact to the boys by persistently standing on my head raising heavy weights and going hand over hand up a ladder i developed my muscle until my little body was as tough as a hickory knot and as supple as tripe i also took occasional lessons in the noble art of self-defence under the tuition of phil adams i brooded over the matter until the idea of fighting conway became a part of me i fought him in imagination during school hours i dreamed of fighting him with him at night when he would suddenly expand into a giant twelve feet high and then as suddenly shrink into a pygmy so small that i couldn't hit him in this latter shape he would get into my hair or pop into my waistcoat pocket treating me with as little ceremony as the lilliputians showed captain lemuel gulliver all of which was not pleasant to be sure on the whole conway was a cloud and then i had a cloud at home it was not grandfather nutter nor miss abigail nor kitty collins though they all helped to compose it it was a vague funereal impalpable something which no amount of gymnastic training would enable me to knock over it was sunday if ever i have a boy to bring up in the way he should go i intend to make sunday a cheerful day to him sunday was not a cheerful day at the nutter house you shall judge for yourself it is sunday morning i should premise by saying that the deep gloom which has settled over everything set in like a heavy fog early on saturday evening at seven o'clock my grandfather comes smilelessly downstairs He is dressed in black and looks as if he had lost all his friends during the night miss abigail also in black looks as if she were prepared to bury them and not indisposed to enjoy the ceremony Even Kitty Collins has caught the contagious gloom, as I perceive when she brings in the coffee urn, a solemn and sculpturesque urn at any time, but monumental now, and sets it down in front of Miss Abigail. Miss Abigail gazes at the urn as if it held the ashes of her ancestors, instead of a generous quantity of fine old java coffee. The meal progresses in silence. Our parlor is by no means thrown open every day it is open this june morning and is pervaded by a strong smell of centre table. the furniture of the room and the little china ornaments on the mantelpiece have a constrained unfamiliar look my grandfather sits in a mahogany chair reading a large bible covered with green baize miss abigail occupies one end of the sofa and has her hands crossed stiffly in her lap i sit in the corner crushed robinson crusoe and Gil blass are in close confinement Baron Trenck, who managed to escape from the fortress of Klatz, can't for the life of him get out of our sitting room closet. Even the Rivermouth Barnacle is suppressed until Monday. Genial converse, harmless books, smiles, lightsome hearts, all are banished. If I want to read anything, I can read Baxter's Saints' Rest. I would die first. So I sit there, kicking my heels, thinking about New Orleans, and watching a morbid blue-bottle fly that attempts to commit suicide by butting his head against the windowpane. Listen. No, yes, it is. It is the robin singing in the garden, the grateful, joyous robin singing away like mad, just as if it wasn't Sunday. Their audacity tickles me my grandfather looks up and inquires in a sepulchral voice if i am ready for sabbath-school it is time to go i like the sabbath-school there are bright young faces there at all events when i get out into the sunshine alone i draw a long breath i would turn a somersault up against neighbour panhalla's newly painted fence if i hadn't my best trousers on so glad am i to escape from the oppressive atmosphere of the nutter house sabbath-school over i go to meeting joining my grandfather who doesn't appear to be any relation to me this day and miss abigail in the porch our minister holds out very little hope to any of us being saved convinced that i am a lost creature in common with the human family i return home behind my guardians at a snail's pace we have a dead cold dinner i saw it laid out yesterday there is a long interval between this repast and the second service and a still longer interval between the beginning and the end of that service for the rev wilbur hawkins sermons are none of the shortest whatever else they may be after meeting my grandfather and i take a walk we visit appropriately enough a neighboring graveyard i am by this time in a condition of mind to become a willing inmate of the place the usual evening prayer-meeting is postponed for some reason at half-past eight i go to bed This is the way Sunday was observed in the Nutter House and pretty generally throughout the town twenty years ago. People who were prosperous and natural and happy on Saturday became the most rueful of human beings in the brief space of twelve hours. I don't think there was any hypocrisy in this. It was merely the old Puritan austerity cropping out once a week. Many of these people were pure Christians every day in the seven, excepting the seventh. Then they were decorous and solemn to the verge of moroseness. I should not like to be misunderstood on this point. Sunday is a blessed day, and therefore it should not be made a gloomy one. It is the Lord's day, and I do believe that cheerful hearts and faces are not unpleasant in His sight. O day of rest! How beautiful! How fair! How welcome to the weary and the old! Day of the Lord, and truce to earthly cares! Day of the Lord, as all our days should be! ah why will man by all his austerities shut out the blessed sunshine and the light and make of thee a dungeon of despair chapter six